If you would please turn to Second Kings eighteen. Second Kings eighteen. All right, what does um, if I were to say a relief, all right? A relief. I saw a relief. What am I talking about if I see that? You may know. Piece of art. Specifically, what kind of art is this a relief? Carving in stone, usually, right? Um, I mean, I think you could probably do it in wood, but every time I've ever heard of it, it's been in the context of like a stone relief, right? And that's basically imagine a stone wall. If you want artwork on that thing out of carving, you just carve indentations into it so everything looks like it sticks out. So you're just basically carving, carving back. Um, so a stone relief. Well, that'll be relevant in just a moment. So, Second Kings, chapter eighteen. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty-nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter, or Abi. There you go, Abi. That's another way of spelling your name, maybe. The daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, and broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Well, that's, that's a frightening prospect. And would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, and from watch and from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. So this would be 722. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozon, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. And so this pulls in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, those things. We've got the exile of the northern kingdom. Um, as what happened with Judah later, they come in, you take the powerful, the rich, the educated, and you take them away to other cities so that they cannot rebel anymore. And so this is what Assyria did with the northern kingdom. All right, so in the 14th year of Hezekiah, verse 13 here, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's a lot of money. 
And so, you know, this is, I mean, this is Hezekiah's fault. He rebelled against Assyria. And so uh, what happens, you've got a little time shifting here, right? This starts back at the beginning of Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah, he rebels against Assyria. Well, Assyria takes over the northern kingdom and then attacks Judah. And here, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, so he sends to the king of Assyria. Now, if you just read the narrative, you might think, okay, so Hezekiah sends a messenger to Assyrian territory, right? Lachish is not Assyrian territory. Well, actually, at this point it is, because they just conquered it. Lachish is a Judean city. It's like midway between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. And so this is, this is Sennacherib is trouncing around Judah. All right, capturing their fortified cities, and Hezekiah, who is losing at this point, sends a message to Sennacherib that's, oh, he's just, he's just right over there. Um, let's send a message to Lachish. Now, I mention this uh, because if you look, all right, if you do an internet search for Lachish reliefs, especially if you put Assyrian in there, you will find um, Assyrian reliefs of the siege of that city. That city was apparently a, a pain for Assyria to conquer, right? Because after they finally conquered it, they basically like, okay, let's let's put this in art, right? We did such a good job here. Let's make some art out of this. And these still exist, which is why you can find pictures of them. They are in the British Museum today. Um, as many things in the world, you know, the British stole them and put them in their museum, right? So they are there today. You can find pictures online. Um, they are exactly what you would expect. They are stone reliefs, and you can see some of their siege equipment, all right? Um, you can see some of the siege equipment we're going to talk about when we get back to Nahum, all right? So in 2 Kings 18, you might recall what goes on here. This is also the story, we won't read it all. This is also the story where, you know, Hezekiah sends a message to, to Sennacherib. Sennacherib sends Rabshakeh. This is like his general. And the Rabshakeh guy comes and stands outside the city of Jerusalem and is talking to the people, all right? Talking to the people on the wall in the language that they can all hear. And the leadership of Jerusalem's like, hey, don't talk to us in that language. Talk to us in another language that not everybody can understand. And the guy's like, no, I'm going to talk to them in a language that they understand just so they know that we're about to kill them if they don't give up, right? That's that particular story. And so it's a great little story. You should totally read it. Of course, the Assyrians do not win. Uh, the Assyrians are defeated miraculously. Now, the Assyrians were extremely confident, all right? When Hezekiah, Sennacherib sends a messenger to Hezekiah, he's like, who do you think you are that you can oppose me? I defeated the northern kingdom, all right? Are you going to talk to your god? You just tore, tore, down, tore down a bunch of his altars and a bunch of his high places. Why is he going to protect you, all right? You can't defeat me. And in human perspective, he's right. Assyria is... Fantastic, right? No one can stop him, except for God. And so you've got in Second Kings 19 the story about how God ultimately comes, strikes the Egyptians, and they have to leave. So totally go check out the Lachish reliefs. All right? Now, please go back to the book of Nahum. For right now, we'll just need our translation, our translation sheet that we've got there. Yes, sir. Do you know how long it was? 
after the premium was split until all this happened? Like you got the Northern Kingdom and then so David was about a thousand alright and so the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom right after the death of Solomon and so 900-ish probably sometime in the 900's I, I don't know that date but this is 200 years or so give or take a few decades yeah, until that happens I was just thinking about they were never supposed to split in the first place. Right? Yeah. Whole setting up the second location, angering God, and I was wondering how many years he was patient. A lot of years. Yes, a lot of years. Nahum two. Uh, let's read. Let's see. Let's let's go with the with the ESV. We've already discussed some of these. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So this is remember, this is basically God taunting the king of Assyria, saying, get ready, I'm about to attack you, prepare your forces, you're going to lose. Alright? That's what's going on here. The shield, alright, and so it's talking here, you've got, sometimes you're talking about the king of Assyria at this time, and this is going to be um, after 722. So this, the fall of Nineveh was in 612, so sometime closer to 612 is when this is actually taking place. And so you've got in uh, in Second Kings it mentioned right during when it took the Northern Kingdom into exile, mentioned some cities, but also mentioned the Medes. All right, so Assyria also conquered the Medes, and this is this is a region that's near modern day, well, probably in modern day Iran. All right, and so Assyria conquers the Medes and takes various Israelites and takes them into exile into into Medite territory. Right. When this happens, this is the Babylonians and the Medes. So the Medes are rebelling against Assyria. And some of this is talking about Nineveh. Some of this is talking about the Babylonian Medite rebellion force. So the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. I assume this is talking about the Medes and the Babylonians. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Those are things we covered last time. This is talking about their army. Uh, first, it's the char- you see the chariots coming for Nineveh out there, flashing metal. And then, flash forward, you see the chariots in the broad streets of Nineveh just going around, just killing people, robbing, destroying. All right? That's the picture there. Verse 5. All right, this one we haven't discussed yet. I want you to read it. I want you to read it in all the translations. And I'll, I'll give you a, a bit. Read it in all the translations. Compare and see what you find that's interesting and worth discussing.
Did y'all have an extra? I'll give you a little bit more time. The question I want you to think about is, who is this talking about? Is this talking about Assyria, or is this talking about the attackers? Depending on your translation, it's it may like the KJV is I think really clear on who this is, right? Some of the other ones maybe not. All right, so let's think about the KJV. Given how they translate that, are we talking about the uh, Assyrian forces or the attacking forces? I'm talking about the Assyrians, right? Because it's talking about the defense. And so they, they make that they make that fairly clear there. He recounts, he shall recount his worthies. All right, uh, they stumble in their walk, they make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. All right, and so for the KJV, this is definitely talking about the Assyrians getting ready for defense. Uh, what about the ESV? That's a good question. Isaac knows the answer to this question. Because the other day, when we were talking about Age of Empires, because we were playing, he made the comment, all right, we were talking about siege barracks, he's like, siege tower, no one would ever use this in Age of Empires, is basically what he said, which is true. You would not ever use the siege tower in Age of Empires. It makes no sense at all. However, the Assyrians, for example, had siege towers, all right? Now, this is not the Assyrians, but if the Assyrians use them, that means the technology is generally available. And actually, in those reliefs, the Lachish reliefs, there is a picture, all right, carved into the wall there, of an Assyrian siege tower being used against the city of Lachish. All right? So maybe the Assyrians would not have done a good job in Age of Empires, but it worked in their world. And so a siege tower, right? And this is the confusing bit, right? If you are a defender, you don't use a siege tower. Right, because this whole point of a siege tower—it's big metal thing. Excuse me, big wooden thing. Maybe some metal or something on there to avoid, you know, 
the whole thing catching on fire or something like that, right? And you, you've seen them in Lord of the Rings, right? You've got this, this big wooden thing. It's on wheels. You're moving it towards the wall. And then there's like stairs or ladders in there so people can go up and get onto the wall. It certainly beats knocking down the wall. That's a whole lot of work. And so you build siege towers. You move them up. The people inside are protected as long as the thing doesn't get set on fire. And you just walk onto the wall and you fight your way there. Right? So the Assyrians... All right, and therefore, everyone else at the time would have had the ability to use siege towers. We've already talked about rams. Another, um, another Age of Empires thing, sappers. All right, sappers, which no one ever gets in Age of Empires. The Assyrians used sappers. Sappers would basically be people who would take shovels and picks and stuff, go to the bottoms of the walls, and they would try to basically pick, a, pick out under the walls so that the walls would just kind of fall down. So the Assyrians had rams, they had sappers, they had siege towers. All right, so they had all these kind of things. Here, you've got siege towers. If this is talking about the defenders, translating this as a siege tower doesn't make any sense. Because defenders, they don't need a way to get up on the wall. If you're on the inside of the wall, you have stairs. All right? Or you have ladders. You already have ways to get there. So that's a confusing translation for anybody who would use Siege Tower. And um, you've got that in verse 5 as well in the Net Bible. The commander orders his officers. They stumble as they advance. They rush to the city wall and they set up the covered Siege Tower. All right. Now, if you translate this as a siege tower and you're translating it as a defensive move, I don't think it makes any sense at all. So that's confusing. Now, altar has, and the mantlets are set up. Do you know what a mantlet is? It's like a shield. It's like a shield. And so if you are the attacker, so this is seems like more of an attacking thing, but you could use them in defense. So let's say you have a wall, all right? And there's guys up here on the wall, all right? And they've got a bow. Excellent artwork, I know. And you're coming down here, all right? So you're... you're besieging the wall. He has a definite advantage against you, right? Because you're shooting down. That's way easier than shooting up. So you can use, if you're an attacker, you can use a mantlet, which would be like a big shield that you could like pick up and carry. That would be something like this. And so you could hold this and they can shoot arrows at you. That's fine. You've got this mantlet. All right. Now, I think you could use that here too. All right. I mean, because they could be shooting over you. But still, I think this is more often like an attacking kind of thing. So who are we talking about? It's, it's a legitimate question. Who, who is it? All right? Is this the, the Medes and the Babylonians rushing to the wall and stumbling because they're in such a hurry to defeat the Ninevites? Or is a, uh, the Ninevites are stumbling as they get to the wall because they're you know drunk or just cursed? by God, and so therefore they're going to lose. Could be, uh, the way ESV reads is almost like the two halves. Like the first half is we need to get to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Mm -hmm. Like saying, Switch of subject, mid-verse. Yeah. yeah. Go fast, but they're stumbling because they yeah. get there so quickly. And I think ultimately it comes down to, I don't think they know for sure, uh, ultimately. It's, I th there's a lot of ambiguities in this chapter. And it's not necessarily a siege tower. It can be a mantlet. It's just essentially the idea is some sort of defense against being pelted by arrows. Right? Siege towers and mantlets both count on that. Yes, too. This is important. KJV is the only one that uses the word 
future tense. Mm-hmm. The other uh, translations, including the NIV, do not use that. They talk as if the action is happening yeah. now, but it could be relating a vision of something to come. Mm-hmm. Well, it is definitely visionary, right? It's So sometimes you have this in, we have this in English, all right? If you talk about something in the future, as in the future, it is exactly what you're saying. It is a it's a prophecy, it is a statement of what's going to happen, all right? But if you talk about the future in the in a present active, all right? You display it as this this very vivid event, all right? Imagine the attack. He's he's getting, he's he's gathering all of his officers. They're all rushing to the wall. They're stumbling as they go, try, just trying to set up the defenses against the siege tower, something like that, right? So yeah, the the King James it keeps the the, the future aspect of this, all right? Because this is all of this is future from Nahum's perspective, right? But yeah, you're, the others they presented in this present tense, so it's got this more vivid feel to it. Yeah, Mike. Just sometimes switch, and you got to look at the context. Like at the beginning of the first five, who's the he? Yeah. Is this the leader of the attacking army? Or are we talking about the leader of the Assyrians? Oh, the leader. Oh, officers, go defend. All right, which kind of makes sense. All right, or is it the leader of the advancing army? All right, is the advancing army even going to have a single leader because it's a coalition? So it's difficult. Yeah. I think it seems strange that the attacking officers would have to remember one of their groups. Like, like we're attacking, go attack. Oh, yeah, there's you guys, too. Yeah, you go attack, too. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like a, a response to, to something they weren't expecting. Yeah, well, that's the, which, if you're suddenly being attacked, yeah. oh, wake up. Guys, go right, but that, but the, like for example, the Net Bible, um, actually, n- none of them have remember right, except for ESV. All of them are he shall recount his worthies, right? <laughs> his his commanders, I mean his 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 best men is what we're talking about, and so you've got commanders in some place, staunch men in altar, right? He calls out to his staunch men, right? Go. To me, it's strange that it would be stumbling, all right. Unless it's talking about the Assyrians. Because stumbling, when you see somebody, oh, they're not doing well. Well, actually the attackers win. We know this, and that's kind of the point of this. The attackers are going to win this. So that makes me go, ah, seems like a defender thing, because they're stumbling as they're trying to get their defenses set up. Do we know what the Septuagint did with it? Septuagint here does lots of weird stuff. Because the Hebrew's hard, and on this whole section... It's way off on all sorts of things. So um, sometimes the Septuagint is super useful. Not not actually here. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So that verse is kind of weird. Yes, Kim. I, was just say, I looked at the Amplified, and they are saying that perhaps it's the Syrian. And then when it gets to the stumbling part, it's because they were terrified because of the attack. Mm-hmm. 
so they're not stumbling, you know. So it kind of gives it a different feel. Mm -hmm. There's chaos, perhaps, going on. Yeah. Well, that lines up with verse 4, too. Mm -hmm. It does. It, but it all depends on the translations. And the translations are all over the map because this, and, and that's been the case for a lot of these verses of chapter 2. It's just there's a lot of ambiguity here. And so they're all over the map. If you're reading the King James, it's clear. We're, these are the defenders panicking. Every other translation, it's like, who? <laughs> are we talking about here? Exactly. Seems more attacker, but contextually, defender makes more sense to me. Right? And the whole stumbling panic, it makes more sense to me. Unless you translate it as siege tower, because defenders would not use a siege tower. It doesn't make any sense. Alright, so that one's, that one's a tough one. Uh, let's look, about, look at verse 6. Alright? It's one of those cases where the KJV is clear. Is it right? Eh. <laughs> clear, yes, yeah. All right, verse 6. Isn't this your first mention of a river? I believe it is. That's kind of ambiguous. I wonder whether if they're opening the river case is it a means of escape. Or have the enemy open up? Good question. So the the city of Nineveh is right on a river, all right? I believe it's the Tigris. It's right on a river. Alright, and so they've got sluice gates, you've got at least one translation. Uh, ways to control the water. Alright, they're gonna use the water and whatnot. However, in this case, clearly, um, I mean if you maybe not in verse six of the ESV, uh, but, well, actually, if you look at the second part of verse 6, right, there's a connection between the fall of the palace and the river, right? So this is not a good thing, right? This is not a, probably not a open them to get away kind of thing. Uh, so the, the royal palace is deluged and resolved if you're uh, or deluged and dissolved if you're in the net Bible. Or the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is swept away if you're altar, all right? And so it was right by the river, all right? And so something related, apparently, to the river was used. We've got in, um, there's a guy named Diodorus Siculus, who's a Roman historian, all right? He writes about this. Now, well, some people doubt that what he's writing is accurate, but he, hundreds of years later, I mean, this is 600 years later, by a guy from another country, all right, so, he writes this, all right, so this would be first century BC, uh, talking about the, the siege, all right, the siege dragged on, and for two years they pressed their attack, making assaults on the walls and preventing inhabitants from the city from going out into the country. But in the third year, after there had been heavy and continuous rains, it came to pass that the Euphrates, which he's wrong about, it's the Tigris, running very full, both inundated a portion of the city and broke down the walls for a distance of 20 states. That's about two and a half miles. So according to this much later account, 
the, the river flooded and did a whole lot of damage. Essentially, some of the walls fell down, which is possible. I mean, that, that can totally, totally happen. It's possible that he's actually reflecting on what he's heard historically, or even what he might have heard about Nahum, all right? and, and just sort of making up some history. Who knows? But it is possible that he actually has a report of what happened. Regardless, it seems like the river got out of control, the water got out of control, and the royal palace is ultimately going to dissolve. Now, keep in mind, often in ancient cities, all right, palaces and temples and all that would be defensible positions. All right? So like the temple was a major defensive position in the city of Jerusalem. So just taking the city of Jerusalem is one thing. Actually taking the temple is another thing, because it also had walls. Right? And so this is something the Romans would have to do when they conquered you know, a few hundred years later. Um, palace could have been a defensive position all right, and destroyed by water. Uh, verse 7. Let's take a little bit and talk about that one. Verse 6, I was yeah. picturing like, like symbolic language. Like it's a river of flooding troops. Mm-hmm. And they're just pouring in the gates and just and this could be imagery, imagery of a river, in actuality, troops. Could be. All right, look at verse 7. Alright, so first question. What's going on with the KGV and what's going on with the Net Bible? Assumptions. Assumptions. Interpretations. Interpretations, yes. The Net Bible doing what it often does, just we're just gonna take the ambiguity out and we're just gonna put a word here. Alright? And they say Nineveh, alright? Which I mean it's clearly what we're talking about. Nineveh is taken into exile, alright? But that's not what it actually says. All right? Now, the KGV, I, I don't, I'm guessing they didn't know what that word meant. And so they were just like, we'll just transliterate this and put it right here. All right? Uh, but when you've got ESV and you've got Alter, they both have this idea of the mistress. The mistress being, of course, is, is Nenema. All right, so you've got Huzab shall be led away captive in the KGB. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, doves tabering upon their breasts. Tabering? Not really a word we use. Beat, drum beat, drum beat kind of thing. 
Mm -hmm. I, I just totally beat on the microphone. Apologies for those who are might be listening. Um, yeah, tabering. I looked it up because I was curious. Is this a Latin word or something? It's actually in Middle English, so interesting. So you've got all of them beating their breast in English, right? Because the the mistress is taken into exile, and the slave girls who would serve the mistress, Nineveh, uh, are obviously going to go into exile with her. Or if not taken into exile, they're just going to be left destitute. All right. Bad situation here. Yeah. Is Uzab a name, or is it a word that we figured out later? It, it, I think it is basically they're like, here's a Hebrew word. Maybe it's a person's name, and then later on they're like, no, that just means. Uh, let's see, that which has been established is is like the literal rendering of it. All right. What is what that has been established is taken into exile. Oh. Nineveh, which had been established, is disestablished. Maybe it's an alternative rendering for for that. I have a question. Why, why is Nineveh a mistress? I'm not saying about the translation, but let's yeah. say it's correct. Why, why is that city called a mistress? So, cities are often talked about as she's. All right, and this is actually going to happen in just a minute as well, related to Nineveh. And so, like, if you look in chapter three, um, like Thebes in verse ten is is talking talk, talked of as if it is a she, or if you look in verse three five, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. All right, so this is talking about her as a woman. All right. And so, that's clearly, it's definitely the context, right? And, I mean, you get to this all the way to, all the way to Revelation, right? Babylon, mystery Babylon the Great. Who is it? Well, it's a woman, all right? Um, same exact kind of imagery that you're using here. So, I think that's where the she mistress must come in, because that's a common thing at least. Any other thoughts, questions? I was reading it as how we use it in a negative way. You know, like, she's his mistress. Hmm. And she's like, what's the relationship between Babylon and Israel? Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder if it's just... It could just be sent in the female form of master, right? It could just simply be that. Or it could be in that yeah, the, the sexual the connotation. Yeah. Girls, As a trophy, yeah. Authority figure, and yeah. then you would take all the women captive as your slaves. Mm-hmm. 
If you're going to leave the men alive, you know, cut off their thumbs. They can't fight that way. That's another option, too. If, if we want to think about brutality, ancient brutality, yeah. But yeah, you're right. Kill the men. Take the women as slaves. Older men, okay, they can, they can live. All right, they can stay there. But kids, okay, you can let the kids live. But anyone in fighting age, do something with them because you don't want them rebelling. All right, let's, uh, let's look at verse 8 and 9. So now we're off our, trans, uh, off our translation sheet. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of all the wealth or of the wealth of all precious things. All right. Once again, it's, this is just, I, I just ran out of space on the paper. Only reason I didn't include those two verses as well. Um, it's just finishing that little section. All right. It's, this is obviously the destruction. Now, last few verses are a section. All right. I'm going to read them. And here's my question. All right. Who's the lion? In this section. Alright, who's the line? Starting verse 10. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Who's the lion? And how do you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, how do you know? Yeah, that's correct. We see Assyria all the time, which particularly the lion with kind of a Nebuchadnezzar looking head. Okay. And the sword's going to devour the young lions. Right. right. That's at the first part, it asks, Where's the lions? All right. Now, lions, the image of a lion is fierce beast, don't run against this thing, it will kill you, kind of thing. All right. When you ask, Where's the lions? Can I ask, Where's the fierce beast? Right? So that kind of sets it up there. But then it talks about the lions, right? What does the lion do? They go and they find their prey, they rip them to shreds, and they feed the, 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 the cubs with the, the pieces of the shredded enemy, you know? But then when you, got, when you get down to um, in verse 13, right? The sword shall devour your young lions. At this point, okay, it's clear. We're talking about Assyria. Assyria, in other words, was. A lion. Fierce, unstoppable, scary. What's going to happen now? All your cubs are going to be slain. All right. All your cubs are going to be slain. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So Assyria the lion, the Assyria, an extremely fierce opponent. All right. When this is being written, an extremely fierce opponent. How could Nineveh be defeated? God says through the prophet, slaughter all your cubs. All right, your chariots burned. All right, everything put to the sword. You'll go into exile yourself. All right. 
Let's read a little bit of chapter 3, and then we'll be dismissed, because we do need to end soon. And this is where we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Host of slain, heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Who shall I seek comforters for you? Where shall I seek comforters for you? I mean, this is like intense, you know? It's like... Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. There's so much talk about dead bodies. Big city. Lots of slang. Nineveh was due for a destruction because of their wickedness. And that's what Nahum's about. So we'll pick up with that uh, if you want to read ahead. No need for there to be surprises. We had Nahum chapter 3. And we'll hopefully end our discussion of Nahum next week. Any final thoughts, questions before we dismiss today? Just sort of a gracious observation. Nineveh is a metropolis or a megapolis. And here it's just worse than decimated. Yeah. And yet, we know from the prophecy of Jonah that same city, when they repent, God makes a mighty salvation. Mm-hmm. Seems like it says something about God. In Even the wicked. Right. Yeah. You're right. No. Where's the, what's the timeline of Jonah on the map? I think it's before this. Yeah. That's a good question, though. I think the idea of where you'd fit this in the history would be, this would be an earlier repentance, not this. Because this certainly did happen. Nineveh fell, 612. To the Babylonians and the Medes. So, so this would probably be earlier. Okay. Well, let's, let's be dismissed then. Anthony, will you pray first, please? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for everybody being able to gather here and get to learn from Mr. Eric and everybody else who's teaching today and help us all to gain something from today and to walk out of here remembering what we were taught. And just thank you for everybody being able to gather in fellowship. Amen. Amen.